Good morning, church. It's good to be with you. Happy New Year. I know I've said that to some of you already, but it's, it's good to say it again, right? And a, and a special welcome to our guest. I want to say a special welcome to the Carters, um, Drew and Mandy, and their two boys are visiting with us from, from Charlotte, the Concord area this morning. Drew and I grew up together. I think, Drew, you can correct me after the service if I'm wrong on this, but I think we went through every level of school together, grade school and then junior high. I know we graduated from the same high school and then went to the same college, uh, which I know some of you will hold against us, but, but not all of you in the room. Uh, but thank you guys for coming. It's good to have you here with us. And also, let me say a special welcome and an introduction to the church family to Oscar. Oscar is back there beside Holly, and he just arrived yesterday all the way from China. And he's going to be living with us this spring semester. He's an international exchange student uh, at the school where I teach at High Point Academy. So we're excited to have Oscar here, and, and we welcome you uh, this morning. Well, for those of you that have been with us, you know we've been on the off weeks when, when Pastor Charlie does not preach. We've been walking through a series in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter there uh, to the church in Philippi. And Lord willing, I'll preach today, and then the next time Pastor Mark will preach, and that should uh, wrap up this study, wrap up this series uh, in the book of Philippians. And you probably know, recall, I usually, when I preach, like to kind of give you from the very outset a takeaway. Uh, and then hopefully we'll see this as we walk through the text this morning. Uh, so here's my takeaway. Christian contentment does not depend upon circumstances, but instead upon the one who is sovereign over our circumstances and with us in our circumstances. So as we turn now to, to look at Philippians chapter 4, let, let's, let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this new year, the gift of life. Lord, thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And God, I thank you that you have given a word to us. I don't stand up here this morning uh, and try to be clever and insightful on my own. Lord, I pray that you help me to explain and communicate the meaning of this text and how it relates and apply, applies to our lives uh, this day for our good and, and your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you were here the last time we were in this book, you remember that Pastor Tim spent the entire sermon on verse 8. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. So let's look there again, because you may recall he made a connection between verses 8 and 9. So look with me there, Philippians 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is ju just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Tim pointed out this strong connection between these two verses. In verse 8, we see the importance of right thinking. What distinguishes Christianity from all other religions is what we believe, right? He mentioned that last time. What we believe about the Bible, 
what we believe about Jesus Christ, what we believe about heaven and hell. And it's right thinking, it's thinking in the right way, thinking about things that are virtuous that leads to right practice. Right doctrine, orthodoxy, translates into orthopraxy. Or maybe a way to put it, right doctrine, right thinking about the faith is what helps us live out and apply the faith to our lives in a way that's right and appropriate. It's impossible for a believer to live in the right manner if we don't think Christianly. And similarly, it's impossible for the believer to consistently think about things that are pure, that are lovely, commendable, honorable, just, if we're living wrongly, if we're living in a way that dishonors God. And we see Paul here again. We've seen this earlier in the letter. But again, he encourages the Philippians, imitate my life. Imitate what you have seen and heard and received and observed in me. What an openness. What openness and transparency we see in the Apostle Paul. Not only has he shared with the Philippians the truths of the gospel of grace, but he shared with them his very life as well. The reality of his sufferings and his difficulties, they've not been hidden from them. Paul's life was an open book to those to whom he ministered with and to. And I'm sure many of us would say, if we thought about our life, if we reflected, who are those who've had the most influence? Who, who's made the most impact in your life? It's not only those who have taught you things that are true, things that are true about the faith, but also those who've modeled and lived it out as well. And so I think for us this morning, that just leads to a very helpful application question. Who are we doing life with? Who are we sharing the truths of the faith with? Who in our lives uh, are, are seeing the faith worked out? Who are we modeling it to? I think it's prudent for us at times to use discretion in those things that we share with others. But it's also prudent for us to realize that real partnership in ministry necessitates a certain level of openness and transparency. We see this in Paul, in his life, in his ministry. Partnership for Paul was more than mere utility. That is, it wasn't just about when he was receiving funds from a certain church. Uh, it, it was about genuine friendship, genuine concern for the Philippians' well-being, and also we see their genuine concern for his well-being. So, so Paul and the Philippians here in this letter is just a good example of us of true partnership in ministry. And Paul says here again, the things, the things that you've learned, that which you've received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. If we were to read this verse, verse 9, in isolation, out of context, we might for a minute think, wow, that sounds a bit arrogant, Paul. What you've seen and heard and observed in me and my life, you practice these things. But we know that's not the case, right? We know for Paul, 
the Philippians were to imitate him as he imitated Christ. Paul consistently pointed to Christ in everything. And therefore he could say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. We also see here as the Philippians do this, as they imitate Paul's thinking and his way of life, there's the promise that the God of peace will be with them. Paul connects the practice of these things with the experience of God's peace. And we know, we would all, I think most of us in this room would acknowledge God's presence, right? That He's omnipresent. There's not a place where we can go to to get away and escape from His presence. And yet, His presence, the God of peace with us, It's only known to the child of God when we walk with Him and when we're true to Him and to His ways. We can experience the promises of verses 6 and 7 that we saw in this chapter. The the peace of God, not being anxious when the God of peace is with us. And it's only possible for for His presence to be manifested in our lives when our entire life, every aspect of our inner life, our thoughts, Uh, Our feelings, our affections, those things we love and long for, and our will, when it's all completely devoted to Him, that's when we experience the God of peace. And then in verse 10, Paul moves to acknowledging the provision of God on his behalf through the believers there at Philippi. Uh, And I think there's such wisdom here for us as we Again, think about true partnership in ministry and the appropriate attitude we're supposed to have towards both giving and receiving. So let's look there at verse 10. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. At first reading, it might sound to you here that, you know, it's kind of like a, maybe a convoluted way that Paul is, is attempting to say thanks to the Philippians for their renewed support while also acknowledging he's not in need. So I think it's important. Let's look closely. Let's examine closely so we can accurately understand all that Paul is saying and what he's not saying here. He's not saying that he's disappointed for the season in which the Philippians were unable to give and to support him financially for whatever reason. Uh, And of that reason, we're not exactly certain. The text doesn't clearly indicate for us. Maybe they were financially unable. Uh, Maybe it was because of his imprisonment they were unable to get the support to him. But for whatever reason, there's a season where they're not able to support him financially. And he's very careful to clarify this point. Look there again in verse 10. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul acknowledges it was never a lack of care and concern. 
Instead, it was an absence of opportunity. But now that they're able to resume their support, he's thrilled. He's overjoyed. He wants to say thanks. He wants to communicate love and affection as a result of the Philippians' partnership with him in ministry. And again, I think this is helpful for us as we think about partnership, giving, and receiving. True Christian partnership in ministry involves three parties. Or maybe we could say at least three parties. There's the giver, there's the recipient, but most importantly, there's God. God's the one who provides the means to give. Uh, and therefore, by Paul keeping God in the picture here, he helps the Philippians avoid focusing too much on the giving. Maybe where they might take credit. It says there again, he rejoiced greatly in the Lord. It's always God who moves in the heart of the giver. And he's the one who provides the means for giving. And the recipient, here in this case, Paul, he recognizes that ultimately the provision has been made possible by the Lord. Then we see Paul move into some personal reflection on his own life and ministry. He says there that there was contentment. I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul learned contentment in his ministry when there was plenty and during those times when there was need. In verse 11 he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. What he's saying there is my my basic provisions, my basic needs, they're being provided for. Paul has learned in whatever situation he's in. That's what he learned in his life and his ministry. He learned the secret of contentment. In any and every circumstance, any, every, every single circumstance, Paul learned to be content. Let's just, just step back for a second. Think about that for a second. He's saying any, every, every situation I have learned to be content. Remember, he's writing from prison. Remember, he more than likely knows how his life is going to end. He has experienced beatings. He's been shipwrecked. He's definitely gone without food. He's experienced cold. And he can say in any In every circumstance, I have learned to be content. It's not something I had from the start. It's something that I've learned. It's something that the power of God has worked in and through me as I've responded to His sovereign will over every detail and circumstance of my life. Wow. I think we would probably all agree that the culture in which we live is something where contentment is, as Puritan preacher puts it in his little book, Contentment, a Rare Jewel. Contentment truly is a rare jewel. It's of such value, of such worth, and yet it's so rare. So many people are are unhappy. There's just a sense of dissatisfaction unhappiness. They're looking for something or someone to fill the void. And I think at times for us here in the West, 
the experience of abundance and plenty, it makes this inward disposition of contentment so much harder to achieve. We've got so much. If we want, we can very often easily buy something else or move somewhere else or do something else or date or marry someone else. Numerous options present a significant challenge when it comes to contentment. In verse 12 here, Paul makes an extremely helpful point as we consider contentment. It is something that he learned. It's something that he had to learn. He learned how to be content when there was plenty. And he learned how to be content when there was significant need. Paul took the experiences in his life and he learned from them. And we too, as we go through difficulties and trials, we can learn to be content. Hopefully we'll be content during lesser trials so that when greater trials and adversity come our way, we might have the strength and be able to be content then as well. What is this secret? How did Paul learn this? What's the secret he makes mention of there in verse 12? How was it possible? Well, I think in order to get the secret, we have to get verse 13. Verse 13 is, a, is an often misapplied Bible verse. We probably, most of you would probably agree with me on that, right? We, we sometimes see Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ. I can do all things through Christ. It's on the back of sports jerseys. It's on billboards. It, it gets put different places, right? And yet we know we're not omnipotent. None of us. If I wanted to run a record-breaking 400-meter dash, now is that a dash? That's a whole lap, right? It, what I know is record-breaking would not happen. If I wanted to knock one out of the park in an adult baseball league, it's not going to happen. My buddy Drew back there is probably really chuckling. Now, my baseball career, it's funny, it started out really well. That was when we were on the small field. Because then you didn't have to hit it that far. And as a pitcher, I think in Little League, my nickname was Smoke. Then, as the field got bigger, I was often referred to as batting practice. <laughs> because the accuracy did not change that much. But the speed definitely did. What is Paul saying here? What, what is he getting at? Well, this is why when we read and seek to interpret and understand the Scriptures, we have to look what's before and what is after the verse we're seeking to understand and interpret. Paul is saying he can do all these things. He can do all these things through Christ who is his strength. These things that he has been referring to. The NIV translates verse 13 slightly differently. In the NIV we get this. I can do all this through Him who gives me strength. Just helping us see that the all things, it's going back to the plenty, the need. I can, I can be content. I can rejoice. 
through whatever God takes me through because Christ is my strength. Whatever he experiences, he can do it with contentment. He can do it with joy in the Lord because Christ is his strength. Christ provides the strength to endure and his presence provides peace and perspective to otherwise daunting circumstances. There is much we can learn here as we consider how Paul learned contentment through the various things he, can, he experienced. And so I think that's a question. I want to spend some time now. Let's just walk through and think. Okay, we, if we agree this is a problem, it's a challenge. it was a challenge in Paul's day. It was probably a challenge in the day of the Reformers. It's a challenge in our day. So, so what do we do? How can we learn to be content? Well, I think a first point of application is we must acknowledge God's sovereign hand over every detail of our lives. We have to acknowledge His sovereign hand over every detail. And that, that would lead us to say, during a season of plenty, it's God's sovereign hand, His goodness that has provided. And therefore, we must fight against the desire for more, but instead give God thanks for what He has provided. And on the other hand, during a season of absence, we must fight the temptation to covet what others have, be it possessions or position or, or power, or just as we look at someone else's life, if we just see a, a season of peacefulness. We know trials and adversity is the normal road for the Christian. Well, at least we know that on a cognitive level, right? But at times when, when trials and adversity comes our way, what we want to do instead of learning from them, I think at times is, is we seek to alter the situation as quickly as possible. We, we want to get out of it, right? We want to run. And I definitely think there are times when God will clearly move us to make a change, to go a different direction. But in the midst of adversity, our immediate response cannot be to run. For then, we may not, as Paul expressed, learn from the situation. I find uh, Burroughs' words here helpful. Again, Burroughs' writing on, on contentment says, uh, when thinking about adversity and just being afflicted, he says this, I find there is honey in this rock. And so I do not only say I must or I will submit to God's hand. No, the hand of God is good. It is good that I am afflicted. That's a hard reality, but just such an important reality uh, to realize it if we want to learn to be content. The good, the promise there of Romans 8.28 that all things uh, will work together for good of those who are called uh, according to God's purpose. Oftentimes that, that good is our conformity to Christ, right? A second point here as we think about contentment and how we can learn contentment is we must experience the pain. We have to experience the pain. At times when trials come our way, uh, we just maybe we're just naive or uh, we just think to, to try to not even feel what's going on. I guess with physical pain, that's not, not really as much a problem, right? If we have physical pain, we feel it. 
But sometimes when we're dealing with emotional or relational pain, we might just become numb to it or not really feel the hurt. But it's only as we feel it and turn to Christ in the midst of it that we can find He truly is enough. We also have to fight the temptation to sin. We know sin is something we still struggle with. It's something we're going to struggle with to the day Christ returns or we go home to be with the Lord. But in seasons of difficulty, in, in times of adversity, we really have to fight the temptation to sin, right? Because it's so easy to want to numb the pain with sin, to seek to self-medicate uh, with, with turning to sin. And as we do that, we turn to Jesus and say, you're not enough. We also have to practice prayer. In order to learn to be content, we must practice prayer. Even if the only prayer we can utter is, God, I am frustrated right now. God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know why you have me here. I'm not sure what you're up to. We have to work to keep the lines of communication op open. Because again, contentment is an inward disposition. And therefore, we must commune with the Lord and ask Him to work in our hearts. We also need to seek wise counsel. Seek wise counsel. Discontentment is fertile ground for isolation. And we have to continue to surround ourselves with others who know us and can speak into our lives. Recently, Holly and I, uh, we were riding in the van and we had, we had the boys with us. They were all uh, locked and, and loaded in the back. Uh, that's sometimes our strategy says you're, you're joking. Amber's smiling. She, she knows that's, that's probably a very true reality. Sometimes if we need a few minutes to talk or maybe just to breathe, we'll just, hey, let's want to take a ride. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it, it was quiet at least for a few minutes. And it was safe to engage in some serious dialogue. And I, I recall I was sharing some things just in my own life where I was at. And she picked up on some frustration. She picked up on the right soil for the seeds of discontentment to grow. And she just helpfully pointed out at times my tendency to look and think too far ahead. To be too future oriented. To be fully available in the present. And it was extremely helpful. It was one of those, ah, you're, you're exactly right moments. And I was grateful. I was extremely grateful. We need people. We need good friends. We need brothers and sisters. We need to allow our spouses to speak into our lives uh, so that we can see blind spots that we don't always see. I think another helpful point, I've got two more here, two more thoughts as we think about this, this practice and learning contentment. We must continue to serve others. We need to keep serving others. I don't think any of us uh, need strong empirical evidence or for me to give you statistics of those who just give their life away in serving and giving to others and they actually experience great satisfaction and contentment. We see that reality, right? Some of you know it. You're experiencing it. You're living it. Those committed to serving and considering the well-being of others experience the greatest satisfaction and contentment in life. 
Recall Paul in Philippians 2. He called the Philippians to look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. The wisdom of, of Proverbs says this, One freely gives, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, and only suffers want. Continuing to serve, continuing to give freely and generously helps us in the battle with discontentment. And then finally, we must surrender to His will. Ultimately, we have to surrender to His will. To experience true Christian contentment, we have to surrender. It's when we acknowledge and say, okay, you're God, I'm not. Have your way in me, have your way in my life, not my will, but yours be done. I know with some of you, I may have shared this before in a different context. I just find it uh, really helpful. Paul Tripp, who's an author, biblical counselor, I've heard him oftentimes when speaking, he'll, he'll make uh, the analogy or make this point when he's uh, talking about just this idea of surrendering to God's will. He'll compare our lives with a book. A book where God is the one writing out the story. And at times, the chapters he brings our way are chapters we would not have included had we been the ones writing the story, had we been the ones holding the pen. And yet, we're not the ones holding the pen. Surrender says, I'm not the one holding the pen, and God, I'm thankful that you are. I'm thankful that you see what I don't see. I'm thankful that you're the one writing the story. I know in our, our body right now, our church family, there's, there's a variety of circumstances that individuals uh, and families are facing. Some of you are dealing with the challenges associated with aging parents and the stress that, that just comes with that. Some are, are experiencing significant physical trials. Others, it, it's more mental, emotional, relational agony. For some, it could be significant financial stress. It could be a difficult marriage. I know for the young families in our church body, it's the challenge each day of making sure the little ones that we have the privilege of raising and discipling are taken care of and attended to. And I know there's other daunting circumstances in, in some of your lives that, that I may not even be aware it's so easy for us if we're not careful uh, or better if we're not prayerful to become overwhelmed and bitter and discontent with where God has us. But thankfully here, Paul, Paul lets us in on the secret. He's discovered the secret and he longs for the believers at Philippi, at Philippi to experience the secret of contentment as well. And it's Jesus. It is Jesus. Looking to Him. Trusting in Him. Communing with Him. Paul could do all these things through Christ who was His strength. And folks, the same is true for you and I. Contentment is possible. We can learn to be content.
Christian contentment does not depend upon circumstances, but instead upon the one who is sovereign over and with us in our circumstances. I like how uh, Tony Merida and, and Francis Chan in their little commentary on the book of Philippians, they say this, Christian contentment is about believing that Christ is enough. It's about believing Christ is enough. So, so do we believe that? Do we believe Christ is enough? Do you believe Christ is enough? Do I believe Christ is enough? Can we say with whatever one of those trials or, or, or whatever one I didn't mention that you know is the reality of your life this day, can you say, I can do all things I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can experience this with joy. I can avoid growing bitter and discontent because Christ is my strength. The law says, thou shall not covet. We shall not covet. And yet we know the law has no power to transform. It's only the transforming power of Jesus Christ that can take those who are covetous by nature and transform us into those who find Jesus to be enough. And so again, the question for us is, is just that. Will we? Will we find Jesus to be enough this day, this week, this year? As we begin 2017, what if we committed as individuals, as families, as a church family to say, Jesus, you're enough. Help me to lean more fully, more completely on you this year. When we seek to understand the scriptures, we seek to see Christ in the text. We ask the question, how does this text point to Christ? Well, in this passage, it's pretty straightforward and obvious. It's impossible to experience consistent, true, gospel-rooted contentment apart from Christ. He's the one that gives us strength. He's the one that gives the heavenly perspective on difficult circumstances. And if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, well then, distinctively Christian contentment, it's impossible. You're not in Christ, and therefore communion with Him in the midst of your circumstances, it's foreign. It's a foreign notion. It really makes no sense. But the good news of Christianity is that God came near. We just celebrated His birth as a baby. God incarnate coming and, and taking on flesh to dwell among us. And He came so that we could know Him and so that our sins could be forgiven. What it means for you today is acknowledging your sin, acknowledging that you've, you've fallen short, you've not lived up to God's standard, and then turning from your sin, turning to Christ in obedient faith. And friend, I promise you, if this takes place in your life, if you repent and if you believe, you can begin, as the Apostle Paul did, to learn the secret of contentment, to actually experience contentment in any and every circumstance of your life. 